line with Sister Joan Chittister. She is a Benedictine sister, award-winning author, and the book uh, that we're going to chat a little bit about today is called Radical Spirit, 12 Ways to Live a Free and Authentic Life. Someone told me the other day that the definition of authenticity is when you can admit to someone when you have been inauthentic. What do you think about that? I think it's very good. I think that gets to the center of the thing. Uh, I believe that uh, we're a culture of images and image making and we have come to the point where where we do mistake uh, an image for the self too often now i'm not suggesting if you can allow me that privilege that the kind of crudity that we're seeing in the name of personal expression in the united states today is uh, my definition of authenticity but i do believe that honesty and humility is so it's when I know myself well enough to admit it and claim it that I think I get to the edge of authenticity. You know, I was discussing the fact that you were going to be on our show with a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about, okay, uh, she's a nun. Nuns' jobs are supposed to be pious, and, and authenticity should be just a thing that you exude, that you that leaks out of you. But then we started talking about the concept of inauthentic authenticity. In other words, within religious tribes, I think that is where inauthentic authenticity is born. Your thoughts? Well, I think, I think you open a, a, a very good issue here. If by inauthentic authenticity we're talking about role-playing, yes. role-playing then, then it seems to me that religion is a likely setup for that. But I don't believe that it comes from the nefarious. I don't think it comes necessarily from the dishonest. I think it comes from um, a, a, a false theology of perfectionism. Nice. Religions teach uh, the need to be perfect, which in the first place, in ground, at its beginning, is heresy. That's inauthentic. There is no such thing is the perfect, and it takes a lifetime for us to understand we're not going there, because there is no there there. So what is authentic is, is being able to, to name and to, to grasp and to grapple with becoming that, that better part of me. I can be this better. I can be a better daughter. I can be a more honest citizen. I can be a more authentic spouse. All of that falls into growth, which is what I think we're called to be. Right. And, and when, you, when you start playing the image games in religion, they're as bad as any place else. Wow. You are a very easy person to listen to. Uh, you must have studied communication. I'm going to go with a yes on that. <laughs> well... I have a Ph.D. in communication theory, but I've never <laughs> taken a speech course in my life. So don't expect too much. <laughs> All right. I think inauthentic authenticity is also a byproduct of any tribal conditioning. So any tribes anywhere, whether they're religious or not, any tribal gatherings, any groups that stick together long enough have this conditioning aspect that happens. It happens certainly, I think, more so maybe in, in religious groups, but a byproduct of tribal conditioning then, I think, is inauthentic authenticity. In other words, I do this not because it's authentic. I do this because we do this as a group. Do you know what I mean? 
Well, I do, but I, again, I ha- I would want to reach back a little before that and talk about uh, the kinds of religion that have been reduced to rules, tribal rules, yeah. their rules, uh, rather than the endpoint of every religion itself, which is the coming of wholeness, of spiritual wholeness. Uh, we live in a culture where physical wholeness has become the whole story. Uh, wrinkle, wrinkles are unaccessible or unacceptable. Uh, gray hair is is to be masked. Uh, when when you when you get to that point in a culture, then then you you have you've lost your way. You you've you've lost the the notion of what it is and the essence of a religion is is the ability to become the fullness of the self that can transcend those the puny parts of life and of ourselves. Again, on the line with Sister Joan Chittister. Sister Joan, you have these 12 steps of humility that I just want to reel off real quick for our listeners, just to give our listeners some context and to tease them into basically buying your book. These 12 steps, really quickly, Recognize that God is God. Know that God's will is best for you. Seek direction from wisdom figures. Endure the pains of development and do not give up. Acknowledge faults and strip away the mask. Be content with less than the best. Let go of a false sense of belief. Preserve tradition and learn from the community. Listen. I'm sorry, what was the last one? Uh, Never ridicule anyone or anything. Speak kindly. Be serene. Stay calm. Now, out of those 12, one really stood out for me the most, and I want to just hunker down on that one just for a second, if, if you don't mind. No. Be content with less than the best. That's the one that stood out for me, too. You Same with you, Gordo? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Be content with less the, than the best. Now, in this culture, and I'm going to say this, even though you've been on Oprah, in this culture of sort of Oprah mentality, which which I think sort of says... Don't settle for and and you can and grow and be bigger and reach for more and go for it and da 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 da. You know, I think about my dad who's eighty three. In his generation, they weren't sitting around going, you know, how can I be better? How can I grow? And I got to read that. And I got to. They just weren't as self motivated. No, what am I trying to say? Self aware. That, that whole self help. Self help kind of stuff. So, do you think? Are you saying we've gone too far and we have become? You know, I know this word gets thrown around a lot, a culture of narcissism. You know, being content with less than the best, if we were all really like that, is that good for us? <laughs> well, well, again, you're good, Drew. You put your finger right in the center of the wound. Uh, in the first place, let me, let, me make, uh, let, let me give you some context here. Yes, I have transliterated these 12 degrees of humility into... Uh, uh, hopefully a language that uh, someone in this culture, in Western culture, Americans understand. At the, at the same time, it's terribly important to understand that these 12 degrees of humility form the center of the oldest uh, religious rule in the Roman Catholic Church. And that you said at the beginning of the show, I'm a Benedictine. And uh, Benedictinism starts in the early 6th century. And in the early 6th century, Benedict of Nursia looks around this society and he sees what you and I see again. He sees the narcissism and the grappling for power. He sees all the money and privileges going to the top. 
sees the little people with no voice, anybody, nobody talking for them. He sees a, a, a culture enslaved. And he writes the longest chapter in his very small rule on humility. And he's writing this with men, Roman men, privileged men, at least as anything we have in this culture. And this is what he's saying to them. If you want to be happy, if you want to know that you have developed as, as a, a, a serious and, in, and important human being to yourself and the people around you, think on these 12 things. And this sixth one, he says, be, live simply and be content with what you have. In other words, refuse to allow your life simply to revolve around the gluttony of money and things. Uh, he wants you to cultivate the things of the soul because the things that society offers you for achievement and the standardized definition of yourself, they come and go. They're outside the self. He's saying, Look, you sure you have to have what you need. And yes, I want you to live a dignified life. And of course, it, holiness does not mean groveling uh, in the clay. But he says, discover beauty. Develop, develop some focus. And uh, of all things, be free from encumberment. Do you have any idea, Drew, how many people... Uh, can't even can't even pause for this conversation this afternoon because they're so worried about um, making a little more money because they bought too big a house to begin with, or they want the Lexus they they don't want the Ford, or they they're looking for the things that convince themselves and by all means their neighbors they can have it all yep. he'll have it all yep. and he says look. The pitfalls of greed are psychologically serious. They have internal effects. They'll drive you to competition and comparison. You'll be discontented all your life. You'll never be serene. Be content with what you have. That, that's a really, that's the center of, of, the, of the human being in progress. Wow, I could easily sit at your feet and listen uh, for long periods of time. Sister Joan Chittister, she is a Benedictine sister, award-winning author of Radical Spirit, 12 Ways to Live a Free and Authentic Life. There seems to be in your book a direct correlation with authenticity and humility. Yeah. So you can't be authentic unless you're humble, or is it deeper than that? Oh, well, again... Uh, I've hesitated to write this book. I've wanted to write it all my adult life. And I put it off, and I put it off, and I put it off. Now, why? And then I decided, I don't want to leave this earth without having had the chance to to write this down in the simplest, clearest language I know. Why? Because in this culture, we have confused humility and humiliations. There's a huge difference between the two. Humility is the authenticity it takes to know who I am, to allow myself to let go of the need to pretend even to myself that I'm more than I am. 
So if I look at the one we just finished, it, it says, uh, no, Drew, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be the best writer that ever, that ever walked the earth, but I've been given some sort of literary ability, and for whom am I using that? And, and why am I bothering? And what's it all about? Uh, because if I want to make money, it ought to be about sex. And if I want to make um, uh, life, it ought to be about you know. Sister Joan so, Chittister, can I can I just suggest uh, that you maybe not write a book about sex? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't know enough. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Had to state the obvious there. Had to just let that one out. Yep. When I look around um, this world, and I'm I'm not an old you know man by any stretch of the man. I'm just I've just turned fifty. I just walked the Camino. I just spent three months in a vow of silence. I'm trying to be aware. I'm trying to be intentional. I'm trying to uh, call baloney on my own ego agenda. You know, I'm into it. I just wonder what I'm noticing about the state of spirituality or or religion these days. What do you think? is happening in regards to the state of spirituality or, or religion? I believe that we're on a, in a massive global moment of transition from one worldview to another. Let me give you a, a, a better example than that. Uh, there, there comes a time in Greek history when uh, what we have uh, translated as mythology, meaning fantasy, um, uh, was was really the religious doctrine of the day. And then all of a sudden, the philosophers come along and begin to uh, pursue the, uh, the nature of thought and how they could identify good thought from bad thought, a good argument from bad argument, for instance. And the philosophers begin to, to question everything in a culture in which nothing had ever been questioned. And of course, one of the first things they begin to question is the nature of rationality, the nature of a human being, and the nature of the of the of life itself, which of course brings you to the gods. All of a sudden, in that great society, people begin to question what they've never questioned before, and they now have some new tools to do it. And what they find out is that what they have been given as answers to moral behavior, ethical concerns and relationships doesn't make any sense anymore. Hmm. How could God eat God's own children? Point is that the old answers have ceased then in that culture to satisfy, and they move away from the gods and Greek mythology. Interestingly enough, Drew, I really believe we are at a somewhat similar uh, situation. Here we are, uh, up until Darwin, uh, the basic and unquestioned religious doctrine was, in essence, God creates every human being discreetly, uniquely, uh, for a particular purpose in order to test whether or not they're ready and willing and able for the next world. Now, here we get up one morning, and somebody says to us, look, here's a thousand, here's a thousand fossils of birds. They're all different. All of these birds have adjusted in different places. Now, if God created birds uh, uniquely, discreetly, wouldn't we expect God to know what kind of bird God wanted? 
God have had to create discreetly, one at a time, this assembly line of birds and toads and people? Couldn't we just have one standard? We are now saying to ourselves, wait a minute, what does this say about creation? What does this fact that we have, we're facing the science of evolution, and, and, and the scientists are telling us it's settled science, meaning they have so much data on this, uh, this notion of progressive development of life itself, that unless they get an equal amount of data to the contrary, they're going to consider this really a, a definition of the nature of life. So our culture, this hundred years, is, is now caught, aren't we? In, in a tug of war between the God in our hearts that we are absolutely certain does exist. And this God we were given, this, this notion of, of God the puppeteer, God the magician, God the mighty warrior, the gotcha God who created you so, so you could be tempted. And then when that God saw you make a mistake, say, that's it. We don't have to make a war between religion and science. We can look at science now and say, what are we being told here? And, and we can begin to rethink our theology of creation, our theology of the nature of God, because it's, a, it's the most important question we have to deal with. What I think about God Mm -hmm. is what I think about myself, about other people around me, and about life in general. So if, if God is just the mighty T's in the sky, putting temptation in front of us so that we can be caught and cast out forever, <laughs> what kind of a God is that? Yeah, yeah. If you say that you have the love of God, then we've been given everything we need. And this whole notion then of... Of, uh, of, of religion is becomes what religion must be, and that is a way to deepen the soul and, and extend the hand of the world to one another so that the, the world that God gave us, God gave us incomplete. Yeah. It's up to us to spend our lives completing what we've been given so that eventually we just all melt into God. Let me finish with this question as as our time has unfortunately run short. Again, on the line with Sister Joan Chittister. She is a Benedictine sister, an award-winning author, and one of the books we've been chatting about is called Radical Spirit, 12 Ways to Live a Free and Authentic Life. Sister Joan, I have many friends who aren't really into any God stuff necessarily. You know the phrase, they're spiritual but not religious. And, right. and even in their spirituality, you know, it's more like a a shopping cart of faith codes and, and uh, pick and choose and, you know, that kind of stuff. And there are some who just, eh, I'm just not even really sure there is a God. So maybe agnostic even. And again, we don't have a lot, we don't have a long time for this, and I'm, I'm saving kind of a big bomb until yeah. the end here. But are you saying that in regards to someone wanting to live a free and authentic life, that it is, it is virtually impossible unless God is a part of your life? Absolutely. I, I, it, it may come in, in one form or another, and it may come at one time and another. Um, I think religion is a growth process. I used to tell 
people all the time that I thought that uh, infant baptism is a wonderful gesture and makes parents feel good. But sometimes before that person dies, they themselves will go back in their heart to the baptismal font that is there and say, now, what do I believe? And how have I grown because of it? I do believe that just as there is an intellectual uh, development uh, or element in every human life, there is a spiritual element in every human life, and it must be satisfied, and it must be saved in to, to it's brought to its utmost development by all of us if we are to be fully human human beings. Well, who needs Henry Nowen when you have Sister Joan Chittister? Fantastic. I need to say that um, when I grow up, I want to be a member of the TED Prize-sponsored Council of Sages like you. Somehow i got to get on that council. Somehow. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea to me, and you ought to be there, Drew. There's no doubt. <laughs> what a pleasure to speak with you, and I have a suspicion that I may reach out again in the future because I just feel like our time was too short, but yet a, a huge privilege. Thank you, Sister Joan Chittister. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Drew. We have a lot to talk about. Yes, we do. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, there we go. Sister Joan Chittister, Benedictine sister, award-winning author of Radical Spirit, 12 Ways to Live a Free and Authentic Life. Any-